European Hearts Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 37, Issue 45, Focus Issue on Interventional Cardiology, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Luscher. Update on Interventional Cardiology, Outcome According to Stent Type and Implantation Technique. After Andreas Grintzig's seminal first coronary angioplasty with a self-designed balloon nearly 40 years ago in Zurich, it became obvious that dissections and restenosis formation severely hampered the success of this elegant approach to coronary artery disease. The implantation of metallic stents, first attempted by Ulrich Sigwart in Lausanne, Switzerland, revolutionized percutaneous coronary intervention in the early 1990s. Coronary stents restrain dissection flaps and create a regular, usually round vessel lumen, which reduces the chances of acute coronary occlusion. Stents also optimize acute lumen gain, prevent early vessel recoil, and limit the constrictive effect of late adverse vessel remodeling. However, the inevitable late increase in neo-intima formation caused by the metallic cage remained a major drawback of bare metal stents. In their current opinion, is it time to take bare metal stents off the catheter laboratory shelf? George Casimis and colleagues from the Gloucestershire Hospital NHS Foundation Trust in Cheltenham, UK, argue that the development of drug-eluting stents, combining polymer technology with anti-proliferative drugs to improve the medium and long-term predictability of stent implantation, has led to products that are so superior to previous devices that bare metal stents should be abandoned altogether. Stents of any kind are associated with a considerable risk of stent thrombosis, requiring effective dual antiplatelet therapy for prolonged periods of time. During the percutaneous coronary intervention, anticoagulation to inhibit thrombin formation is also required. In their clinical review, Anticoagulation in Coronary Intervention, Acute and Chronic Use, Uwe Zeymer and colleagues from the Klinikum Ludwigshafen in Germany remind us that percutaneous coronary intervention by itself indeed induces thrombin generation that is associated with the risk of acute, subacute, or long-term ischemic events. Therefore, intravenous anticoagulation is recommended to minimize acute and long-term thrombotic complications. The intensity and duration of anticoagulation needed is dependent on the clinical presentation, i.e. elective percutaneous coronary intervention for stable coronary artery disease or for non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome or for an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction as well as procedural features. Since both ischemic and periprocedural bleeding complications are associated with acute and long-term mortality, the optimal level of anticoagulation and the best agents are a matter of debate. Despite a number of limitations and the lack of large randomized clinical trials, unfractionated heparin is still being used in the majority of interventions. Intravenous enoxaparin, a low molecular weight heparin, leads to a more predictable level of anticoagulation and has been compared with unfractionated heparin in patients with elective percutaneous coronary intervention 
and in primary percutaneous coronary intervention with favourable results. The direct thrombin inhibitor by valerudin has been studied in numerous trials and has mainly been shown to reduce bleeding complications compared to unfractionated heparin with or without GP2B-3A inhibitors. This review summarises the current status of anticoagulation for percutaneous coronary intervention and the results of most recent trials, and give recommendations for different clinical scenarios. Compared with bare metal stents, first-generation drug-eluting stents are associated with an increased risk of late restenosis and stent thrombosis. In their fast track, 10-year clinical outcomes of first-generation drug-eluting stents results of the sirolimus eluting versus paclitaxel eluting stents for coronary revascularization, CERTAX, very late trial. Stefan Windecker and colleagues from the University Hospital Bern in Switzerland argue that it remains unknown if this risk continues or attenuates during long-term follow-up. Thus, they extended the follow-up of the randomized sirolimus eluting versus paclitaxel eluting stents for coronary revascularization, CERTAX, trial, containing 503 patients who received a sirolimus eluting stent and 509 individuals who had a paclitaxel eluting stent implanted to 10 years. At 10 years, follow-up was complete in 88% of the patients. At 1, 5 and 10 years, Rates of ischemia-driven target lesion revascularization were 8.1%, 14.6%, and 17.7%, respectively, and rates of stent thrombosis were 1.9%, 4.5%, and 5.6%, respectively. Independent of age, the annual risks of ischemia-driven target lesion revascularization and definite stent thrombosis were significantly higher during years 1 to 5 as compared with the 5 to 10 year period. Major adverse events such as cardiac death, myocardial infarction and ischemia-driven target lesion revascularization occurred in one-third each of sirolimus and paclitaxel eluting stents. The authors conclude that after implantation of first-generation drug-eluting stents, the annual risks of ischemia-driven target lesion revascularization and definite stent thrombosis decreased beyond five years implantation. These findings may have important implications for secondary prevention after percutaneous coronary intervention with first-generation drug-eluting stents, including long-term antiplatelet therapy. The manuscript is put into further perspective in an editorial by Davide Capodano from Ferrarotto, in Catania, Italy. In percutaneous coronary intervention for de novo coronary bifurcation lesions, the optimal technique for provisional side branch stenting is still a matter of debate. In a second fast track, culotte stenting versus TAP stenting in the treatment of de novo coronary bifurcation lesions with the need for side branch stenting the bifurcation bard krotzingen BBK, two angiographic trial, Miroslav Ferenc and colleagues from the University Heart Center Freiburg, Bad krotzingen in Germany, tested whether, in this setting, 
culotte stenting reduces the incidence of restenosis as compared to T and protrusion stenting. The trial randomized 300 patients with a coronary bifurcation lesion requiring a side branch stent to either culotte or T and protrusion stenting using drug-eluting stents in a one-to-one fashion. The primary endpoint was maximal percent diameter stenosis of the bifurcation lesion as nine-month angiographic follow-up that was available in 91% of the patients. After culotte stenting, the maximum percent diameter stenosis in the treated bifurcation lesion was 21 plus or minus 20% and significantly higher with 27 plus or minus 25% after TN protrusion stenting. The respective corresponding binary restenosis rates were 6.5% and 17%. The one-year incidence of target lesion reintervention was again, with 12%, significantly higher after T-stenting compared to 6% after culotte stenting. Target lesion failure occurred in 6.7% of the culotte and 12% of the T and protrusion group. Only one patient of the culotte group incurred a definite stent thrombosis during one-year follow-up. Thus, the authors conclude that compared with T and protrusion stenting, culotte stenting was associated with a significantly lower incidence of angiographic restenosis. The manuscript is further discussed in an editorial by Adnan Kastrati from the Deutsches Herzzentrum in Munich, Germany. At present, no proven standard treatment for drug-eluting stents, restenosis, is available, although it is associated with impaired outcome. However, the locally released drug from the metallic cage may make a difference. Thus, Do-Sun Lim reports the results of the Restent ISR trial on behalf of the investigators in their paper Prospective Randomized Comparison of Clinical and Angiographic Outcomes between everolimus eluting versus zotarolimus eluting stents for treatment of coronary restenosis in drug-eluting stents, intravascular ultrasound volumetric analysis, restent ISR trial. This was a prospective randomized nine-month intracoronary ultrasound or IVUS and three-year clinical follow-up study comparing the effects of everolimus eluting stents and zotarolimus eluting stents on neointima volume and major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE, such as death, myocardial infarction, target lesion revascularization, and stent thrombosis in patients receiving a drug-eluting stent to treat restenosis. They were eligible if they had developed an in-stent restenosis of more than 50% by quantitative coronary angiography in a drug-eluting stent or within 5 mm of the stent edges and signs of ischemia. 304 patients were randomly assigned to receive either everolimus eluting or zotarolimus eluting stents. The 9-month angiographic and IVUS follow-up showed no significant differences in late lumen loss or neointima volume in both groups. Composite maces, such as death, myocardial infarction, stent thrombosis and target lesion reintervention during three-year follow-up were also comparable between the groups, independent of de novo drug-eluting stent type, gender, age, 
body mass index, diabetes, hypertension, or dyslipidemia. The authors conclude that in patients who developed restenosis after implantation of a first or second generation drug-eluting stent, both everolimus-eluting and zotarolimus-eluting stents were effective and safe in reducing neointima volume and late lumen loss with a comparable rate of major cardiovascular events independent of cardiovascular risk factors. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.